0: center for education research and innovation we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact but how do you do that how does a researcher get to that point what we do know
1: is that researchers are united in their curiosity what we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity let's dive in
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the curiosity habit. This time I have a a good friend with me uh, who also chaired with me a role in the early career medical educators group um, and a person that I have enjoyed chatting through the years and meeting at conferences It's Dr. Mahan Pulasegram. He's a scientist at the Wilson Center the Director of the Office of Education Scholarship at the Department of Family and Community Medicine at U of T, and the Temery Research Chair in Learner Assessment as well at at U of T. Welcome, Mahan, and thank you for being with us.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me. Longtime fan of the podcast and listener, Uh, first-time guest, I guess. Uh, Maybe one day I'll come back when I have something new to
0: say. Oh, for sure. We love having people back. So maybe we can reflect about that as we go through. So Mahan, one, or as you may know by now, uh, the goal of this podcast, I like to say that this is about the stories of the people behind the research. Yes, we're going to be talking about your research, but I like knowing a little bit about the person. And on those lines, I would like to start from the beginning. Like who was Mahan growing up and what was he curious about when he was little?
1: I was a huge nerd, I think everyone would have agreed who met me with five seconds from the age of five. Uh, this was not surprising. My mom uh, is and was a teacher in Sri Lanka. So we moved when I was fairly young to the Middle East where my dad worked in the oil fields. Um, and because of sort of the way society structured there, it was me and my mom a lot of the time. And you know one of the main things that we could do because of you know the things that we had access to was go to the library. And so she started reading with me from a very young age, and I got fascinated with history and science, and uh, probably more history than science. And so I just wanted to know things. I loved reading and wanted to know things, um, and that nerdishness, I guess, was what uh, is is the original sort of uh, transformative part of my um, ed- life as a young young person. You know, my parents really instilled the value of education, and then I think when we came to Canada. Um, you know, my mom picked up uh, teaching again, uh, sort of in in her private business, um, I became really interested in some of the things that she was uh, doing. And that kind of guided me to think about, well, you know, what does it mean to learn? How do we do learning effectively? But I never thought about it as a a professional obligation. I wanted to go to med school like so many immigrant kids. uh, And and that's what my sort of family thought that, that I would do. Uh, and so somehow I got lost along the way and found myself here.
0: Oh, so interesting. So I just want to pick a little bit on the story of moving from Sri Lanka, right, to yeah. the Middle East, to Canada. What was that journey? How, how was that journey for you and, and what happened for those moves? Uh,
1: so a big part of the move, of course, is there was a lot of political and civil strife in Sri Lanka, and you know, there is still to some, some extent, and being you know Tamil minorities, um, opportunities for employment and uh, education were naturally limited. So, you know, moving to Saudi Arabia for my father was, uh, you know, was a difficult time personally, but um, in terms of professional reward, it was it was great. And for me, it opened up opportunities while at the same time limiting opportunities for my mother and my and my father. So I was, I had the benefit of an education system that was built around the American standard uh, and English language instruction, and a lot of like academic enrichment. Um, But, you know, pretty soon the writing was on the wall and my father decided to move to Canada. We had a lot of family here and, uh, and that was a difficult transition. I was sort of 10, my sister was five. Um, And, uh, and, you know, coming here was again, another opening of opportunities for, uh, for me spe- uh, specifically, um, while at the same time imposing challenges for my parents as new immigrants who had to adjust and adapt and you know find ways to make a new life for themselves. Um, and so it was tough for them especially um, and it was tough for me sort of adjusting to a new culture and a new way of doing things. Um, but again, enormously beneficial and I'm enormously grateful for the opportunity to be, uh, to be here and to learn here, to be, you know, be a part of a, a society where we have the luxury of thinking about things like medical education, um, the luxury of thinking, you know, expressing freedom and opinion and uh, participating in a, in, a, in a multicultural civil society. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's uh, it, it's strange how thing, how those things unfold. But um, I, I think one of the benefits of that, you know, transplanting across three different societies is that. It gives you a different set of um, uh, perspectives on what is changeable, what is not changeable. Um, and also it gives you a different set of, I think, anchoring values about you know, uh, what, what, what can work, what can't work and how we can sort of problem solve around uh, the things that we struggle with as a, you know, as a community risk as people.
0: Yeah, I imagine also a lot of flexibility to be able to adjust, because you just said that you wanted to go to medical school, but you got lost. I would say maybe a little transition or deviation. Like what happened there? Like, why did you not end up going to to med school? What what captured your attention that deviated from the original plan?
1: Um, You know, first initially was the humanities. I was really interested in pursuing a career in the humanities Um, and, you know, history particularly. But I'm sure this joke has been made, but history is a pyramid scheme. Uh, so unfortunately <laughs> there are very few jobs, uh, and you wind up teaching history to other people, either in high school or, you know, or other form of education. And if you're lucky at the university setting, uh, but I, I, really enjoyed it, but more than anything, I think the people that I met and admired, especially the academics who were my teachers and mentors, uh, none of them were physicians or had a clinical practice. And some of them had moved away from a clinical practice and they, really, and this is a corny phrase to put it, but they, uh, they really embrace the life of the mind, the life of the mind and how to advance knowledge to think about how we know things, what we know to question those things. Um, and certainly one of the most attractive things for me when I looked at um, how they worked and how they um, uh, carried out their, uh, their, their scientific or academic goals, um, was that it was enormously fun. It looked like a lot of fun to be an academic, um, to have long discussions, to learn uh, about new ideas, to be challenged, and to, you know to do that over a beer at the Phoenix, uh, you, know, which was the campus pub uh, on McMaster. Um, I, I love doing that. Uh, but uh, what uh, you know, uh, as a grad student, certainly you have access to a lot of that. Um, as what I realized, you know, when you become a faculty member, um, they they certainly didn't tell me about the number of meetings they had to go to on a on a weekly basis or the number of, you know or the number of emails that they had to write and respond to. Uh, so I, I think you know the the heyday of that type of academic probably at least in our field is is probably gone. But it's not to say that I haven't had as much fun uh, doing what I do or I haven't had made as uh, made as many good friends or as had as many great times. Uh, know, being an academic and being a researcher.
0: Was someone in particular growing up or when you went to grad school that really inspired you to become a researcher?
1: Uh, There were two people. Um, One was uh, the first person that probably I met was Patangi Rangachari. So he was a, he trained to be a physician in India back in sort of the post-partition days um, and was essentially instructed in what you could describe as a classical english education so he was our cell biology teacher and he started out by quoting poetry and talking about the relationship between art and science and um and you know one of the things that was impressive about him is it sort of gave up a career in medicine went to berkeley during the 60s and sort of started doing a phd in molecular uh, gastroenterology and did a lot of work on receptors and uh and uh, you know, agonists and antagonists, and uh, ended up teaching pharmacology. Um, and so he had a thorough basic science career. But ultimately, though, the, his main interest was education. Um, so a lot of the things that I got to know, uh, know with him and explore with him was like, what does it mean to learn? What does pedagogy look like? What are the philosophies that underlie it? And what does it um, and what does it look like when we have transformative moments in in the classroom? Um, and the sort of the things that I admired about him was that he was a very effective teacher. So he you know he had a, a 3M award in, in sort of teaching, but then he was also very um, uh, very thoughtful about what he was doing and grounded, very rigorous. So he. He preferred something like an inquiry approach, something that was very much steeped in sort of the philosophy that we had, and I think that shaped a lot of my thinking in sort of you know what, what I think means what it means to learn something and how we should engage with other learners. Um, and as I think back about it, that that was actually a lot of what my mother did, though so she never used that abstract language um, to describe it. It was it was part of her practice. Um, and so I, I enjoyed doing that. Yeah. Um, then I met Jeff Norman who ended up becoming my PhD supervisor. Uh, you know, he was my stats professor. And if you know, Jeff, uh, you know, in our field, he is, uh, he is known for being tall and he's known for being humorous. Uh, and so I kind of had the gumption to just sort of walk into his office one day and ask him a whole bunch of questions. I had no idea what he did, no idea about medical education or cognitive psychology or clinical reasoning. Um, but I, you know, after a semester worth of just asking questions about stats, I kind of asked him for a job over the summer. And uh, that led, you know, that led to many other things into, you know, how to think about science, how to think about learning in a systematic and disciplined fashion. Um, and, you know, that, that's kind of where I started.
0: Well, that, that's an interesting part before we get there. Like you have a PhD in clinical epidemiology and biostatistics. Yeah. First of all, how did you gain that interest? And number two, how did you move from there to medical education?
1: So that, uh, so at McMaster at the time, uh, Jeff was appointed to that department. We didn't really have a medical education uh, uh, disciplinary program per se. There were lots of education programs. But there was no department that granted degrees. Um, and so you know, he said, if you're going to work with me, you have to be enrolled in this program. And there are some strong benefits to it. Certainly, I, I, I learned about RCTs and evidence-based medicine with, you know, all the gurus of the field and people who are doing clinical trials. So I always felt like a bit of an imposter, but it gave me an enormous amount of respect for methodology, um, for statistical analysis, which has served me well. Uh, but all the work I was doing was really about, you know, teaching people and working on you know, instructional questions and learning questions in medical education. Um, I was fortunate, though, because Jeff also said that if you really want to know about education, you should go to um, the Wilson Center and be a fellow. And you know, he had former students there, like Nikki Woods, who became my supervisor there. Uh, and I, you know, and I and I had sort of the best of both worlds. I had a this, you know sort of strong foundational training, and yet I was also able to hear you know, Brian Hodges talk about Foucault, and, and I think I overlap with Lorelai just for a little bit uh, before she uh, came to Western and Glenn and Glennon, when they were talking about, you know, the work. So those, those, those two uh, learning places, those two cultures were really helpful for me.
0: Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned Nikki Woods, and we had her in, in the show yeah. before, uh, and just strikes me that I didn't know that she was your supervisor when you were a fellow.
1: That's yes, she is. was. Um, yeah, yeah. Nikki, uh, N- Nikki was sort of the the second person in sort of I guess the second or third person medical education that I met, um, and she, I think she had just maybe two or three years into her first faculty appointment. She had just sort of left McMaster, um, and so uh, after Jeff made the connection, I you know I we, I met her. I really liked her work. It was very aligned with the way I thought. Um, but then you know it was. It, what was really interesting is that I really got to know her and like her as a person, someone who I can call a friend and yeah, and, and colleague now. And so I spent a lot of time learning with her, um, learning how not to do things, learning how to do things, a uh, you know, bit of both. And so she'd probably say I was her worst student, um, but I'd like to tell her that I, you know, I am her most accomplished student uh, to date. <laughs> So, you know, there is a bit of a bit of a balance there, too.
0: Yeah, yeah. because in, in, in this community, we are so small that we usually end up being the mentee of someone and then becoming a colleague of the same person. Um, for, just for the audience, I, I wanted to pick your brain into how was that for you in becoming her mentee and then now becoming a close colleague? Because I believe the two of you worked together in several projects. What was the process and what interesting stories came out?
1: Um, I think it was it was fascinating because I don't think we've ever had an explicit conversation about it, Nikki and myself. Uh, we we just kind of transitioned into that role. I still think of her as a mentor, um, though she would again say that I'm probably unmentorable and she's done her best as much as she can with me. Um, thanks, Nikki. Uh, so uh, uh, what, what's happened now, though, is that I think we've um, become fairly aligned in the way we think about our work. And we're sharing supervision of students, for example, um, and in several projects together. Uh, but what I think has made it easier is that it, it's a lot of fun working with her and you know, and my colleagues, that it's not a, um, that while we take the work seriously, we don't take ourselves too seriously. And, and I think that's one of the ways I like to think about how I work is that you you need to have fun if you're gonna be an academic because otherwise there's really no, uh, there, not to say there's no point, but um, you're negating one of the huge benefits of being in academia, which I, which I think is inherently a fun thing if, you're, if you are a nerd, um, yeah, which yeah. I think the majority of us are.
0: Plus it's also necessary because we are so exposed to rejection and disappointments that if we don't see the fun part, it would be really hard to survive, I guess.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, You're absolutely right on that. Yeah.
0: So you mentioned that um, when you were admiring those role models, like they never told you how much of the email and the meetings that you have to do. Was there anything else that surprised you about being a researcher when you became a researcher?
1: Um, So one of the things that surprised me was one, the, call to becoming an expert in things that are kind of adjacent, and I would not have thought of myself as an expert in, and yet I had sufficient knowledge that other people thought I should weigh in, and I I think, Sarah, you've talked about this before in the podcast, and and I think we've certainly talked about this in our transitions to academia, so that was particularly challenging. You go sit on curriculum committee and, you know, provide some input, and, uh, man, one of the things my training certainly taught me to know was how much I don't know, and how much context and feasibility and all these factors mattered. Uh, the thing that helped me a lot, and I have to say, I, I think this is one of the things that I hope all of our PhD students in health professions education get a chance to do, is that when I was a student... I had a lot of opportunity to do consultation and I was pushed into a lot of sort of service related roles that um, on the grand scheme of things, people might say, well, it's detracting from your PhD work or that's not really advancing your research program. Yes, but as an academic citizen and someone who lives in an applied interdisciplinary field, uh, it taught me how to work with a lot of different people. Um, taught me how to communicate complex ideas. And it also taught me what it took to make change uh, in, in, a, in a large institution like a medical school. So when I started working with Nikki, you know, because she was from McMaster, there was another colleague who was the admissions dean at the time at U of T, Mark Hansen, a good friend of mine. And, you know, a, a person I attribute a lot of my success to because, you know, he came to her and said, I need someone who knows how to do reliability statistics and stuff. And she said, oh, well, Mahan's from Mac. He knows that stuff. Or go, You can ask him. And he's done some admissions stuff to do. And then Mark and I formed a partnership when I was a PhD student that still continues to this day and made a lot of change in the MD program. Um, And that, by and large, led to people recognizing sort of my value. It wasn't anything that I'd done in my PhD work, per se, that convinced the program to fund my salary, Um, though I think that probably convinced the Wilson Center that I was worth it. It was there, the fact that I was useful to them. And I I, I have to say, I think that's a really, really important part of that experience. And as a person who is in education, like the theory part is very important, and I understand that very much. But we can't be divorced from understanding how that gets translated into practice as much as it is the way we don't think necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the politics of it, the, the social organization of it, all that stuff was so enormously helpful. And I, I think that made me understand kind of how I fit into the big picture of, uh, of medical education and also like enormously grateful that people like us are able to contribute to it.
0: I'm so happy that you brought that up because that the value of engaging in consultations is is beyond just doing something for someone. You're also getting out of that, like refining your thinking, as you said, in this community is learning about the context uh, and what's involved to put things in practice. So thank you for sharing with us, because I think it's the first time that I heard that in the podcast. So assessment, that's how you are kind of labeled, because of course we have to live with that. What fuels that passion, and how did you come into doing this kind of research? I le- I read about you doing assessment towards learning outcomes. So, can you explain to us a little bit?
1: I'm sure, but I do have to say that you know I did not take a single course in assessment. UFT, um, it's too late to fire me. You already gave me the job uh, <laughs> during my PhD. Um, I, uh, I I literally learned a lot of it through sort of practical. Um, application in my PhD work, uh, and sort of thinking and reading. um, And then eventually, sort of when there was looking for a niche for a role, they said, well, admissions, that's kind of assessment, you seem to have the skills necessary to do that, you know, what a, you know, a generalizability coefficient is, and what an alpha statistic might be. So why don't you, why don't you take on that role? Um, But at the end of the day, though, for me, assessment is just a vehicle for another way to facilitate learning. Um, So what I try to think about when I think about assessment is that it's a learning opportunity, right? And either the learning opportunity has to be for the learner, like they're getting something out of the experience of doing the assessment or the feedback they get after the assessment or the choices that they're making as a part of preparation for the assessment, or the program has to learn. Like as a result of that assessment data, it's not just a competency decision, you met a threshold or not, but really, like what else can you use that data for to help the learner, help the program, help identify what the gaps are? So there is this move, I think, to you know, conceptualizing um, all of what we do in, um, in, in medical school as contributing to the learning mission. And I, and I think the assessment uh, component of it is so powerful. We, you know, that throwaway saying assessment you know, drives learning. Um, that those types of ideas, I think, are at the heart of the work that I do. Um, this very specific angle, SIRA, I take, and maybe this hopefully this doesn't get too technical for people, is I really think about as someone answers a question, what types of things do they have to think about to get that question right? And if they're thinking about, well, how do I eliminate these options? You know, what's the least obvious one? And if they're guessing that that's no good, but maybe helpful for the learner in the short term. If they're thinking back to slide 13 in lecture four, that's what they said would be on the test and therefore there it is and they repeat that information. I also think that's no good because that's not what real life is like. But if they're thinking, how do I put in for, you know, what what do I have to pull together to know this? Can I imagine myself at the bedside thinking about, you know, how I treat this patient? What makes the most sense here? That's like an optimal process. And there, you know, for different stages of learning, there'll be different types of things you want people to think about. So I do a lot of work to think about, you know, at that micro level, what does that assessment experience you know mentally have to look like and then if you start scaling that up to a course or to a program how do we then sort of think about that ex- process expanding um and i'm fortunate because like when, when i do my work I'm, I'm not doing it separately from people who think about learning instructional design or curriculum that that really is my background too i spend a lot of time doing that as opposed to studying assessment issues and so that's been helpful to think about alignment like how do you make sure your assessment isn't standing in the way of a really lofty goal that you might have for this new teaching technique or this new instructional approach. Um, those things have to like really work together. Um, and so that that is what excites me and what sort of keeps me interested in assessment as a uh, problem, I guess.
0: I really like how you describe it as you're combining like your your background, but you were really trained on with this kind of new field and and giving it a unique spin. So that's nice. And I was, and you also said that you never took a course in assessment, and you're not alone. I'm doing a qualitative research, and my PhD is in engineering. So never, ever a course okay. in qualitative research. So we are on the same field. But on that topic, for, for our listeners, um, how did you reconcile that idea of people seeing you as an expert on something, and you feel it I don't have the degree, or didn't do a course. Like, what was that transition to you to becoming to forming your identity as a researcher?
1: I, I think a big part for me was um, faking it till I make it, and I don't know if that's too real for the podcast. But you know, if <laughs> there is, are students, is. if, if they are students, students listening to this, that's certainly a big part part, part of uh, part of what made me successful. But at, at the same time, too, recognizing that. Um, I, I, you know, one of the great things about being in a PhD or, you know, other type of graduate experience is that you learn how to look up information on demand, but you also know how to look beyond and deep into the, uh, the literature and sort of think about fundamental issues. And because of my historical bent, I've always loved reading sort of the papers from the 50s and 60s, or even beyond before that, that kind of form the fundamental ideas. And one of the things I think That I that I've certainly found is that a lot of those poor ways of thinking or those ideas still apply today. They're they're still very useful and productive um, perspectives. If not, they provide useful and productive metaphors to work with other people around. Um, And so I've sort of gone back to that literature and sort of pulled that forward and said, like, let let me think about how I apply this. Let me think about how this relates to this. Um, But also, like, what I've been really fortunate is that I've I've been surrounded by people. Um, you know, talk about collective competence, who've made it easy to be good at what I do. Um, lots of people have been able to ask for advice, to ask for input, information, and knowledge, uh, where, I, where I recognize the limits of my own, um, and provided a lot of that um, um, sort of support to become better. Um, and I, I think those sort of three factors really helped me sort of grow into my role. I, I think, uh, I don't think I really felt competent at what I did till maybe, you know four or five years ago um uh, and, and i think that's not uncommon and when we when people talk to professionals um so uh that was a huge um it was a huge transition but uh, the great thing about being in academia i think is that uh, there's always an opportunity to learn something new um there's always an opportunity to test sort of your your, your knowledge and in our field especially to think about every problem in a different way. So I can spend a little bit of time thinking like a sociologist because I have a sociologist who sits across the room from me about a particular problem and say, how is that different? And how is my view different? And then do I still like, do I still think my view has merit or it does it is it, is it no longer uh, tenable based on these assumptions? So I, I get to do a little bit of back and forth. Um, and again, I've been fortunate to have people around me who've pushed
0: my thinking. But you're totally right. It takes a little while to realize that a PhD is, is a training in thinking, yeah. regardless of the area or the topic. But it takes a while to get wrap your head around that. And then, of course, the value of mentors and peers around you and networks is extremely important. So now you said uh, you love history and you read history. What else did you do outside your academic research life that Keeps you
1: going, that motivates you? Uh, so my wife and I are outdoorsy people, so we like to go hiking. Uh, so that keeps us busy. We haven't been able to do as much of it this past year because uh, you know, she works in healthcare and it's been an incredibly busy time. Um, and that, uh, you know, that's been an interesting part of my, my life for sure. Um, the other things that, uh, I particularly enjoy are so I, I, read a lot of, uh, fiction, uh, and we have a book club at the Wilson center that meets on a sort of a, uh, I guess every couple of months we s- sit together. I mean, we talk about the book for about, uh, most of the book club meeting, and then you know, we move on to other things and it's always at a nice restaurant or, 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 or pub. Um, so I, I really enjoy doing that. Uh, and, uh, I, I, I guess uh, we, you know, I have a new nephew. Um, so he was born he's just six months ago. So more recently that's taken up a lot of, uh, you know, our times so we're playing with him and uh, babysitting him and, you know, getting to know him a, a little bit. So that, that's that been a lot of fun. Um, but other than that, my life's pretty boring, Sarah, I, uh, you know, a bit of a, you know, go, go to work, come back, read. That
0: well, sounds good to Netflix me. Netflix and chill, <laughs> yeah. So congratulations on your nephew. That's great. Oh, thank you. Uh, what, uh, that's a great idea about the book club. And I'm, I'm just thinking we should do it here as well. What what has been a book that people have really liked and that got so, the attention? Uh,
1: the great thing about our book club is that everyone's hated it. You know, uh, at least one person has hated <laughs> every book uh, very strongly. Uh, and, you know, I started, I, I think I picked the first book, which was Lincoln and the Bardo. Uh, which I thought was a wonderful book. And there was polarizing reactions to that. Uh, the last book uh, we read was by Ewan McEwen. And I, I have to say, I, I'm forgetting the name. And again, Polarized Reactions. Um, we've we, you know, we gone back and like picked some, uh, there's always been a sort of a speculative fiction bent to our choices. Uh, and more recently, we've sort of transitioned into a, uh, I guess non-genre literature. So we've read uh, books that are sort of Canadiana, a, a little oh, yeah. bit, um, and we've read a, a, a few books that are uh, sort of sort of classic, um, you know, mid mid 20th century, uh, you know, high literature pieces. Uh, but we have not been able to satisfy anyone to the to the degree uh, that, you know, it's not Oprah's book club. Certainly we're not reading Oprah's book club books. There's no, like, I don't think there may be heartwarming or, um, you know, commercial stories there, which not to sound snobbish, nothing wrong with Oprah's book club. Um, I'm I'm not a hater, uh, but, you know, we try to pick things that we wouldn't otherwise read. I think that's been really helpful. So, you know, I would never pick up, uh, Justine, which was a recommendation from Neil Byrne. Um, I would never have thought about reading that uh, read that book, but it was it was great, and uh, I thought you know, the author Gerald Durrell apparently was was hugely famous um, in through of the mid '60s, and you know the, the quartet of books were apparently like you know modernist fiction, very very uh, very significant impact, um, but challenging and, and different. Uh, so I, I yeah anyway I'll, I'll stop plugging the book club now.
0: Well, that's a great idea, because the other thing that I can see in terms of building culture is it gives you topics of conversation that is non-academic, that sometimes you get, OK, come on, let's, let's do something different. That's a great idea. Congrats on that. I have two more questions and I let you go. The first one, the usual one, what are you working on? What's your next curiosity, research-wise?
1: So I've been working a lot on this idea of test enhanced learning. And you're probably familiar with the idea that, you know, you test people after learning, they they remember it better than if people are just asked to study it, which is, which is good. Um, but, you know, we often those tests come after the learning experience. And I've become really interested in what happens when the, the utility of testing before the learning experience. Um, certainly we all know that has a benefit or some sort of impact, but I'm one curious about what does the design of those tests have to be in order to prepare people for the way you have to learn, um, as opposed to just telling you what you need to learn. And then I'm really interested in sort of the impact of those tests and learning behaviors. So does it promote good learning behaviors, like pre, you know, preparing for the session, looking up the answers if you, don't, if you, don't, if you didn't do well on it. Um, and we're, and uh, we're doing a lot of uh, work in, in that uh, area, especially in like continuing medical education, um, and then the other piece that I'm working on right now with many, many researchers across Canada is sort of setting up the, um, the infrastructure necessary for big data in medical education. And that, you know, that's a buzzword for sure, but we're hoping to make that more of a reality than a buzzword at this
0: point. That's great. Thank you, Mahan, for sharing. My final one, just on the lines of thinking differently. If you had not been a researcher, that, if that hasn't been in your path, what did you think you will be doing?
1: I honestly think I would probably have gone into something like uh, teaching, mm-hmm. or I would have joined the diplomatic service um, and the foreign, you know, foreign service. I, I had uh, some you know, experience with that, like doing like, volunteer stuff in high school. And I thought that looked like a lot of fun working for the Canadian government, going to like the High Commission and some other place and, you know, making contacts. I don't think I would have been good in the intelligence service because I can't keep a secret, but maybe <laughs> I would have been the guy who be like, oh, yeah, buy Canadian maple syrup or whatever. Or, you know, softwood lumber. We need to we need to find a deal on this. Uh, maybe I would have been that guy. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, but I think I would have done all right with uh,
0: with either of those uh, things. That's fascinating. And it came from your high school experiences.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I was fortunate enough to sort of uh, go on like a, a like a trade mission, like, you know, they bring on the kids, you know, to, you know, show, you know look, this is what a trade mission like, the youth of the tomorrow, blah, blah, blah. I'm not I'm not denigrating what you're saying it was it wasn't a very big deal. It was just an experience for a young man that was really quite interesting and, uh, and uh, eye opening. Um, and I thought that would be something fun to, to do. Um uh, yeah, and I and I've always liked traveling a lot, so uh, I would have uh, I would have really enjoyed that. Um, but you know, life has brought me here, and I'm very happy that it's brought me here. Yeah,
0: and who knows? You don't know what's laid down the road, so you can probably merge one day.
1: <laughs> yes, you know, I think when our mutual friend Javid runs for prime minister one day, uh, yeah. maybe I could be foreign minister or something like that. Yeah, I think I see that in the cards for him.
0: Yeah. I can see that. And we are in the elections. time. Yep.
1: Election on the brain for everybody.
0: Right. Exactly. Thank you so much, Mahan. This was a very enjoyable conversation. I appreciate you sharing your stories.
1: Uh, thank you for the opportunity. And uh, hello to everyone out there in uh, podcast world.
0: Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you in the next episode.
1: This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Sarah Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinaro. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.